It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to another Tuesdays with Trey. This past Sunday marked the 21st anniversary of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It's a day those of us who are alive will never forget and a day that changed us as a nation. When you reach a certain point in life, you recall several tragedies, both the public ones we share as a people and the individual ones we process alone. For some at Christmas, uh, it's the day a loved one died. For others, Mother's Day is a mixture of emotions because some people's moms have passed away. It's a sad reality of life that if we live long enough, we're going to say goodbye to someone we love. So that said, I thought it would be good and hopefully helpful to revisit a conversation I had with mental health and addiction expert, Dr. Kevin Gilliland, who is a clinical psychologist on how we can process these moments of tragedy. Take a listen, and I hope it helps uh, each of us process the valleys that we will encounter in life. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. It's, uh, it's been a sobering couple of days. We had another mass shooting this week to go along with the one the week before and uh, church shooting the week before. And if you go do even a rudimentary search of mass killings, not that they didn't exist before, you know, before I was a kid, but they are so much more prevalent now for our kids and our grandkids. So violent crime is on the rise generally. We're just coming out of a pandemic, maybe, or maybe we're headed back into one. Who who knows? But it's been the roughest stretch. And frankly, I'm not prone to depression, but it's all pretty depressing. So I want to talk to an expert in psychology to at least try to understand where we are and how to help others and how to help ourselves. Kevin Gilliland is no stranger to this podcast. He's not a stranger to my television show. I've known him since we were teenagers. He has a doctorate in psychology, a PsyD, if my memory serves me correctly. He majored in psychology, undergraduate as well. Equally important for this conversation, he's a father. He's a husband. He's a son. He's a brother. He's a soon-to-be grandfather. Um, And we got to make some sense out of this somehow or another. He's also honest, and he's not in politics, and he's not ever going to be in politics. So I'm counting on him giving us some candid answers. Welcome, Dr. Gilliland. Thank you. It is, as always, good to be with you. But um, as you said, with with very much of a heavy heart for those parents and those kids. Um, it's a very heavy subject, as, as you and I said before we started. You and I have both spent time with people that were victims of violent crime, and it's heartbreaking. Um, 
So, yeah, I hope, contrary to what we see often in the media at times like this, I hope we can have a thoughtful discussion. So, and, and I'm quite confident we can. Uh, well, I want to start right there. I get asked from time to time, what's the toughest day you had when you were in Congress? And they think it was some vote or some committee hearing or something like that. And it wasn't, Kevin. It was the day the Speaker of the House called me out of a committee hearing and said, I need you to do something. I need you to meet with the parents of children killed at Sandy Hook in my office because I can't do it. Man. Uh, and the speaker at the time was right. He could not do it. He, he was a very, very openly emotional man. He cried during the singing of the national anthem. But you, you, can, be, you can be laconic and not outwardly emotional and be devastated by meeting with the parents of children killed at an elementary school called Sandy Hook. So we'll get to the parents and grandparents in a second. For the rest of us that maybe were not directly impacted by a mass shooting and we didn't lose a kid or a grandkid or loved one, but we're all impacted. So how do we even begin to process this depravity? Mm, man, it's um, well, there's a couple of things we all ha- it, it it does affect all of us personally because it's it's so unpredictable and it's unpredictable because it's. It's such a low prevalence behavior. Um, we have studied this for decades. And when I say we, I mean the field of psychology, psychiatry, the FBI has studied it. Um, the um, uh, Secret Service has studied it. I mean, there have been some brilliant people study it. And it's difficult to predict, extraordinarily difficult to predict, which is unsettling for all of us. And then the other thing that you and I talk about all the time is you have to guard how much social media and TV you watch because this is a highly political issue. It's one of the places that I get really upset with politicians. They it makes me livid. They camp out on one or two typical subjects that overly simplify a very complex behavior and they seem wonderfully confident and they are, they're just horribly wrong. This is a complex behavior and complex behaviors are extraordinarily difficult to predict and treat. So it impacts us on several levels. Be very careful how much you consume on social media and and TV, because it can be very upsetting and you can end up feeling really hopeless um, because I'm not, as I said to you, I'm not confident. We have the right people trying to solve this problem. We just don't. And, you know, you hear people saying, when are we going to do something? When are we going to do something? I don't know that there is a national coherent approach with thoughtful people that represent all the different parties and uh, and, and parties broadly, not just politics. I I mean, religion and race, um, age levels, including all the schools, workplaces. And yes, if we have to, people that 
are politicians, but they better be the right politicians for the right reason. And so that's what's really frustrating for me is I see no effort in a coherent way to improve the safety of some of our most vulnerable. And that is really frustrating. I remember Kevin sitting in church with Terry uh, the Sunday after the shooting in Sandy Hook and the church that uh, Terry uh, takes me to on Sunday mornings showed each of the names, which I think is absolutely vital. It is one thing to say, Uh okay, 20 children were killed. Now you need to look at the names. You need to look at the faces and the images. It's not a number. It's a life. Uh And I remember thinking, Kevin, okay, this is it. This country is not going to put up with the systematic slaughtering yeah. of children. I know. And yet here we are and not, nothing has been done. I know it. I know it. And that upsets me to no end. My, your wife, both our wives are teachers, elementary school teachers. Um, and my wife, quote, retired two years ago, but she's, she's up there substituting four out of five days a week. So she just loves children. But when our kids were in school, um, it was always on my mind um, because of how vulnerable our schools are for reasons we don't fully understand in terms of what, what perpetrators do that. Um, and I don't feel confident that we have done anything to really prevent these things. Clearly we haven't. Um, and that just really angers me. Um, you, you don't hear it in my voice because it so saddens me. I got an email yesterday from a colleague because um, back in my early days, I, I did some work with uh, organizations when there was back in the eighties, seventies, eighties, maybe early nineties, there was a lot of worksite violence Um it is shifted to schools, but we, we had to do a lot of counseling and resources for these worksite mass shootings. And a mass shooting is more than three victims at one location and one event. The majority of gun violence is self-inflicted or murder, homicide or individual murders. But these mass shootings um, are different and unique. And I literally got an email yesterday from one of those agencies that coordinates services asking if um, if I was available and and had some time to help uh, some of the the parents. And, and I'm like, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It, it. Yeah. So you, you you won't hear much of my anger today that you would have heard on any other day. Um, it's just more the sadness. So. um we do have to hang on to the names and faces, but I don't see, uh, again, here's what upsets me. I don't see anybody in Washington or even at a state level that has a thoughtful strategy that includes all of these risk points for some of the pieces that we know about vulnerabilities. All right. Here's what I want you and I to do. Uh, not that we can solve it, but, you know, p- part of answering questions is at least asking the right ones. So you got a background in psychology. I was I was actually a gun prosecutor before mm-hmm. I went to Congress. Yeah, so I want us to break it 
you know, I don't think this is overly simplistic. If it is, I apologize, but look, but, but, but we got to get it to where we get our arms around it. So I want to divide it into four categories. I want to talk about weapons, the characteristics of those weapons. And that's going to be a one-sided conversation, Kevin, because you're the hunter and I am not, you, you, you know more about firearms. Every time I've ever been hunting has been with you as a matter yeah. of fact. So yeah. weapons, the nature of the weaponry, I want to talk about the shooter. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about our culture because those to me, you have to address all four of those yes. if you want to make progress. So I don't want to totally dwell great. on the weapons, but, but you are an avid outdoorsman. Yes. You are, you're so good with a gun, you've moved to a bow because the gun's <laughs> not challenging enough for you anymore. But okay. even you, are are wondering i don't want to put words in your mouth but i think even you are sometimes wondering okay i'm not going to see 50 deer at one time so why do i need high capacity magazines yeah so let's that's it that's a good place to start because unfortunately it's where a lot of politicians start and finish and again it's inadequate and totally wrong i do i'm i'm not a vegetarian i do eat meat um and, and don't email me if, if I don't eat it, I don't, I don't kill it. And so, um, and actually as I've gotten older, I enjoy the outdoors more than I do working that hard for, for meat for, for the rest of the year. But, um, I, I have a handful of firearms. They're all basically for hunting, but I, so as a gun owner, You have to be reasonable and go, okay, there are, and I know it's going to upset some people and don't care. There are weapons that are currently available for citizens that I don't think belong in the hands of everyday citizens. I just don't. Um, I get the amendment, but we've got a wonderful military and we have wonderful state police and special forces and national. I I don't worry about that. Um, I don't believe there are certain types of weapons that should be in the hands of the general public. I just don't. And, and when we when you hear politicians, you end up with this all or nothing. And you go, well, that doesn't help us in this subject or in medical care. It's just an asinine approach to solving a complex problem. And so. Even though I am a gun owner, I absolutely would give up some of my, quote, freedoms or rights if it meant protecting other children or grandchildren or my family. I would gladly have a thoughtful conversation about it. And so um, now, is that going to eliminate gun violence? No. But we can absolutely do something, even though we're a country that owns a lot of guns, we can absolutely improve the safety, the access and remove the rights of people that have shown some of the high risk behaviors. And that's where there's so much rhetoric in in politics. And, and you know, I don't know that I've ever said it on. uh, I know I've never said it on your your uh, TV program. And since it's only us, you know what I've, how I've talked about politics. I, I can't stand politicians. 
And that is all of them. I know I'm on Fox and it's funny how people are like, oh, you're I'm like, no, you don't understand. That's right. I can't stand politicians. Uh, not a single one of them. You were however long you were in Congress. Every time I texted you, it was about two subjects, your hair or your clothing. I don't think I ever asked you a political question because I was still contemplating whether or not I'd be friends with you when you were done, because I wanted to see what happened to you. So I don't like any of them. And I trust you that there were actually some good people there. I don't believe you, but I trust you. So that kind of polarizing discussion, we have suffered from that. And and at some point, we've got to have something that moves to a discussion that is productive, that all the states can adopt. So, Yes, are weapons a piece of it? They are a piece of it. But like I said to you, the first and the deadliest school killing of elementary school children, 1927, 38 children were killed in Michigan. And it wasn't a shooting. It was a very troubled, disgruntled farmer that set up explosives to harm children. So we've had that happen It hasn't been like we've seen it these past few decades, but we can absolutely do something in the category of weapons. Yeah, I think even in cultures that that are not as firearm intensive as ours, Mm -hmm. uh, they'll find a way. And again, that's not a justification for firearms. Firearms make it a lot easier. Yeah. uh, and, And it opens up the category of those who would be willing to hurt children because everybody can't build an explosive and everybody's not going to walk in with a knife as they do in some cultures. Right. So you raise a good point. All right. Let's assume that we agreed as a culture to some kind of magazine or clip capacity, some limit. Then we get to, okay, whatever that limit is, it's almost as if our culture is saying, okay, you know, 13 dead school children's too much. We're going to cap we're going to cap the clip at 12. 13 is too much. We're going to, but 12, we can live with 12, which then moves us to the shooter because we don't want any. Yeah. We, we don't want any. So this is where politicians yeah. and lawyers who don't understand. I mean, Kevin, is there some test we can administer to people to figure out who's going to be homicidal in the future? I mean, is it that simple? No, it's actually not. Um, we, we try to cast it as um, these. this is mental illness. And you go, well, that's actually a misnomer. Because when you look at psychiatric illness, you, you have to look at the entire population, right? And that includes depression and anxiety and substances. And you go, that's not this group. What this group seems to struggle with in these individuals, and again, mind you, This goes back a long way, whether it was in the 60s with the the shooter and uh, on the campus at uh, University of Texas and the governor at the time appointed all of the some of the most brilliant psychiatrists and said, I never want this to happen in our state again. Um, So we have a lot of people that have done forensic autopsies is what it gets called of. Who is this individual and what are the general things we can tease out of it? The broad statement of it's people with mental illness is misleading. What it ends up being are people that are psychologically troubled. And so 
the FBI, like I said, the FBI, Secret Service and psychiatry and psychology looks at and tries to tease out who are these individuals. And and you here's the problem with what we know so far about this individual. One of the things that stands out with these young adults that perpetrate these mass uh, murders are that they have been alienated and bullied and sort of isolated to the margin of their peer group. They, and that leads them to become sort of loners that have this social alienation. Um, Not always in that sort of paranoid delusional sense, but in this mindset of being rejected and uncared for. Um, Almost, uh, and you hear it some in, in this individual, to the point of being um, made fun of and humiliated. Now, here's where, and you and I have talked about this a lot, social media can amplify that. Um, it's not to say it's the cause, or it's the, but it's one of the pieces we have to look at because the other thing they tend to do, and unfortunately, this is part of the challenge, he said something about his intentions to an individual he had never met or known in Germany, I believe. Um, but it was so close to the time that he acted on the behavior that it makes it extraordinarily difficult to intervene, literally within maybe an hour or two. Allegedly, after he harmed his grandmother, he sent a message to this individual in Germany, which you got a massive time zone change, no telling when she saw it. He had also sent an image of uh, the guns. But here's the problem is that when we study individuals that are apprehended, that think about it, the vast, vast majority never act on it. And so we've got to figure out a strategy of, especially these individuals that appear to have some markers for risky behaviors. How do we step in to limit their access and availability of a means to perpetrate? I think that's one of the places and and it's where it's going to be difficult is it means restricting the freedoms of individuals that may have thoughts, but no intentions to carry it out. I often make the analogy to if people knew the numbers of individuals that they cross paths with in their everyday life that have had thoughts that they don't want to live anymore and take their life they would be astounded. They would be absolutely astounded by how many people have those thoughts, but have never acted on it. And and that is one example of one aspect of this behavior that is so hard to predict. However, there are some risky symptoms that can form a cluster, if you will. I hate to say profile because that is horribly misleading but of these symptoms that might lead to an active shooter or perpetrator that we can step in and do some evaluating psychiatrically and put some things in place that are tied together so that it greatly limits this individual's ability to access the means to carry that out. We do some of the same things with suicide or people that have uh, a plan to carry that out 
so that we help keep them safe until they can get the appropriate treatment that reduces the risk of that behavior. Um, and, and so like the, the shooting last week, which was just horrendous. Um, he was evaluated by mental health experts, but he didn't verbalize any of these in, uh, of these intentions or plans to, to harm those, those people in that supermarket. Um, and that's where the low incidence behaviors like suicide or mass murder are extremely hard to predict. So we have to look at what can we do to intervene on these individuals? And then that also will spill into the next subject. But I know you have thoughts about what I just said or questions. Well, I mean, what I hear you saying is those with markers or those that have some potentiality Mm -hmm. to engage in this, not unlike suicide, Right. That is that is a bigger group than the group that would ever act upon that. Yes. So the remedy might include or uh, or or sweep up people who have the thoughts or the markers that would never do it. And then we're in a society that values freedom. So and we're also in a reactive society. Kevin, I mean, you've done work in law enforcement. Yep. Law enforcement reacts. Something bad happens and they react to it. They're not good at stopping it from happening in the first place. Exactly. So it would be an unrealistic burden to put on them. Although we do try it with counterintelligence. We do try yes. to stop yes. the next 9-11, stop yes. the next terrorist act. We don't yes. really try that with domestic Crime. And what I hear you saying is if we want to stop this, we're going to actually have to maybe cast the net even wider than those who would actually ever likely do it. Yes. Yes. And that's, man, that's such a great analogy, Trey. Um, We are currently doing that when it comes to terrorist attacks on this country. It seems a logical next step to include these things in that same approach because it is absolutely effective and beneficial. There's no question about it. Is it 100%? No. But has it greatly improved our safety? Yes, it has. And, and that group we identify, we have to be able to step into to assess, treat, and prevent. If you think about the war on drugs, Yeah, part of it is we got to do something to keep it out so it doesn't flow in easy. But we also have to do some treatment. We got to do both those things and we got to do it in the in a thoughtful mix. And there's no thoughtfulness in this. Yeah, well, we may get to this at the end or we may not, because I I don't have the answers, Kevin. But you mentioned the word freedom. People do like their rights. I mean, we're in this culture where we value free speech, even if the person talking has no idea what they're talking about. And sometimes even if they state mistruths, we value freedom. And I'm to the point in life where I actually value life. Yeah. So because I don't know what freedoms those 20 dead kids in Texas have right now. I I don't know what rights they have right now. And I'm telling you, and and most of the people I talk to, I would absolutely give up some of my freedom 
if it meant your kids are safer and that those people just trying to get groceries or just trying to pay for their kids food and school and have a job. If it means they're safer, I don't even know those people. And I absolutely would give up some of my freedom. If it meant they're going to be safer. And I think there's Kevin, which gets to the causal link. Yeah. Because when you have such distrust in government, which is rampant in this country, like I would, I would forego my social security to, to bolster that program for people that are more in need when that time comes, but no one's going to do that. If you don't trust the people doing the bolstering or the administering. I told, I, I told my lovely wife last night who this really weighs heavy on her heart as a teacher, elementary teacher. And, and she started talking to me about all the things that the school, and I knew this, but all the things that they have done to talk to teachers and man, it's just crush. I'm like, you shouldn't have to do that. But I think one of the things we have to look at in terms of freedoms and, and investing and protecting our kids is like it or not, we've got to look at, and I know a lot, I know there's a fair number of schools that have gone to this where they have locked down all entrances and exits and everything goes through one door that, that parents and visitors and that it is all through one doorway and that they have a presence of police presence. That's more than just one officer. Um, And and like it or not, I think we're going to have to create the space and whether taxes or I told her, I was like, if somebody, if they develop a thoughtful approach, I'm telling you, I would donate money on a monthly basis to a fund that was thoughtfully done to protect and secure those schools so that teachers can just think about teaching their kids and know beyond a shadow of a doubt they're safe. And so I think there are, I think the majority of us would get behind a group that had organized to do that at a national level as long as it's not led by politicians. I just think people would do that in a heartbeat. Now, you may not like it. You may not like that kind of uh, uh, tightening up of school campuses. But I, I, again, I come back to, well, I absolutely cannot stand to the core of my being that people have to worry about their children being educated and development socially and interpersonally with, with, with academics and theater and sports. And yeah, I'm sorry it's changed, but let's, let's do some things that make it, the wonderful environment it's capable of being again. And yeah, does that mean we're going to have to spend a little money and lose a little bit of freedom? Yeah, but isn't it worth it? Isn't it worth it? More of my conversation with Dr. Kevin Gilliland right after this. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. 
All right. I want to ask you about some big concepts because I think it plays into it. I mean, I, we're both married to elementary school teachers, this notion that we should arm teachers. I mean, I, I mean, Kevin, I mean, they've obviously never met either of our wives. So, no, no. I, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, where, where do you think Ann and Terry are going to carry that firearm? I mean, is it going to be on their hip when they lean over to hug a five-year-old? Is, I mean, is that what you want? I'm like, my goodness. Okay. Look, those, those people with, with that idea should not be allowed at the meeting. The meeting that you and I are clearly going to be running, that, that, that idea is not. No, no, that's I appreciate that idea. I, I don't. That's not a good idea. There are better ideas than that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, for instance, maybe creating a school environment where the teachers don't need to be armed. So how about that? Yeah, we'll start there. All right. Fear. Uh, fear. You know, I, I just wrote a book where I talk about fear. It should never drive the car, but I'm okay with it picking the music because because it makes us cautious. And and sometimes that can be good. But young people going to school today or in the fall, living with this omnipresent fear hanging over them, will it be my school and will it be today? What does fear like that do to people on a daily basis? So, um, Trey, can I call you Trey? Sure. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to have to take you to school real quick on a basic biology lesson. You know, one of the reasons you and I struggle in college uh, when it came time for exams is that we didn't really prepare. Um, I think you alluded to that in a uh, national way on television when you referred to us not going to class. Um, this is a related subject. So us not having studied adequately, we sit down for the exam and we start to be fearful. Now, let's take a peek behind the curtain of what happens biologically when we trigger the fear response and these kids daily. The fear response is actually we've artificially kicked off our fight or flight response. That's a wonderful thing, but we're supposed to turn it on, turn it off based on a specific event. Because when it happens, we don't need to do math. So we have no executive functioning. We actually drain the blood out of parts of the brain that help us think and learn because we need it into the regions of our brain for our large muscle groups. We need better vision, better hearing. So you can't thread a needle. You don't need fine motor skills. You're going to need to run or fight. You also drain the blood out of your stomach because you're not going to be eating. You're going to be fighting or fleeing. So your body is conserving and shifting resources in the blink of an eye. We don't even think about it. It's like breathing. We don't think about breathing. So when you trigger that fear response like we did in those exams and we say, God, man, my mind just went blank. That's actually a biological statement. You drained all of the oil out of your car's engine. It's not going to run. So if you're sitting in class fearful about your safety, you quite literally are not going to learn. Your brain is offline. You are vigilant hypervigilant looking at listening to sounds. You're going to be jumpy because your hearing is at its peak because to be safe, you have to hear better and see better and smell. All of those things are heightened, which means the thing that I need to learn is currently offline. So from a practical standpoint, you are not capable 
of learning. Now, here's the other problem. You also are dumping chemicals that are supposed to be released in short amounts and then resettle. When we do that chronically, we actually weaken our immune system. And when we weaken our immune system, we create the vulnerability for all manner of illnesses and diseases. It's one of the things I talked about during COVID. If you allow this unbridled anxiety, you are accidentally increasing your risk of getting COVID and having it longer. People that have anxiety, when we study anxiety and fear in cancer patients, people that have a diagnosable anxiety and that are cancer patients, don't respond as well to the cancer treatment. They have higher levels of pain and a longer recovery. Why? Because their immune system is compromised. They have literally drained their resources physically and psychologically. And it is a horrendous state to put young adults in because now you've increased the likelihood that they're going to have a disorder they will have to fight with the rest of their lives. And that impairs our quality of life. So your lesson is over, Mr. Gowdy. What questions do you have? Well, you know, I'm a big picture guy, Kevin. So if I understood you correctly, uh, living in a perpetual state of fear actually impacts adversely your educational experience. It's terrible for children to live in a constant environment of fear. And that's true, whether it's at home or at school. Yeah. See, look at that summary you pulled together. I hope you work that in Sunday. I may. Uh, I've only got an hour, though. I want to switch over to one other thing. All right. Or a couple other things. When you were in grad school, getting your PsyD in psychology, you may not even remember this, you needed a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. So you sent Terry and me the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, so you could score it. Right. And you didn't believe Terry's because it came back like angelic. Uh, right. Not of this world. Yes. And you did believe mine and you immediately called the FBI and said, you probably want to keep your eye on this guy. But in my defense, I I didn't call him. I I did send him a letter. Okay. uh, In certified mail. Okay. You didn't call him. I didn't call him. No. The truth is, and, and I dealt with this when I was a prosecutor, if there were a test that we could administer to people right when we give them the PSAT or right when we give them these other tests in elementary school. We're going to give you a test and we're going to determine whether or not you're going to be a psychopath or sociopath. Is there such a test? I mean, is there any way to predict who is going to wind up engaging in this homicidal activity? No. Yeah, let me help you with that. No. Complex behaviors are difficult to identify. A test may help give us information, but it's only one piece of information. Um, We're going to need a lot of other data points, and that's going to involve interviews with the individual, with parents, with teachers. It's going to be a labor-intensive task. Um, I go back to your analogy of, of the safety of our country. Um, there's not a test you can give to individuals. There's, um, there are uh, some instruments we can use, but no, there's not a simple test that can be given. 
All right, this is a debate I have with some of my friends on the left from time to time. It's usually in a law enforcement context, but it fits here as well. I mean, I've got friends that believe anyone can be, quote, helped. And what I read into that is anyone can be, quote, fixed. So we just need more time with Dr. Gilliland, or we need more time with a therapist, or we need more time with a psychiatrist. But if we just like got them the quote help that they need which then leads to a conversation which i don't think either one of us really want to have because it's kind of slightly spiritual and and i i don't i'm that's that's above my pay grade but this notion of evil that there are some people who are just so bad they cannot be helped how do you handle this this belief that well anyone if we just got to them soon enough if we just noticed it in elementary school if we just did this and got them counseling sessions that everything would be fine versus these people that are just born homicide natural born killers was a movie when you and i were coming along just born to be a killer Mm -hmm. no that is not true counseling and medications can absolutely help the majority of us with the majority of things we struggle with. No, you absolutely cannot fix, if you will, everybody that struggles. And this is a particular group that no, you, you, okay. You, then you just haven't talked to some of the people that I've talked to and you haven't read and looked at some of the people that we have had to lock away for the rest of their lives because society is not safe with them. So while I appreciate the intent, it is absolutely wrong. Uh, Now, could we help some of those individuals in that larger group that we identify? Absolutely. Are we going to identify some people in that group that we are going to have to be mindful and will never be able to have access to those kinds of firearms? Yeah, there are going to be some people that that are identified as, yeah, I'm sorry. That's just not going to be an option in your life. All right. One thing that has come out in the aftermath, not just of this shooting, but you touched upon it. uh, These people that feel isolated, they feel like they're on the fringes of society. And then that's usually followed by um, a belief that the shooter himself, and it's almost always a him. Yes, Uh, was bullied or abused. I heard it for 20 years in a courtroom. The only reason this person did this is because they themselves were abused or they themselves were bullied. And in my simple non-psychology mind, Kevin, I say, okay, well, then that means you went and killed the person who bullied you or you killed the person who abused you. But that's not what you did. You went and killed 20 school children who did absolutely nothing to you. I know. So what is the connection between being bullied or marginalized or abused and then going to hurt people who didn't do any of that? Okay, now you're getting at the real challenge in this thing is that there are a lot of people that get bullied as adolescents. Part of it is the ignorance of adolescents. I mean, see previous reference. You're talking about teenagers at a really strange time in life. Um. And a lot of people get bullied that never have the thought of doing anything like this. That's why I say you go, okay, well, let's identify the entire group of people that were bullied. That's a big, big group. 
those people never acted on it. But the people that do act on it, there seem to be those that were bullied broadly or felt isolated and disconnected socially. Um, that is a broader issue than just being bullied because it, it incorporates this individual's psychological makeup that there are people that socially struggle in high school that may have been bullied on an occasion or two, but they don't end up with this alienation and resentfulness and paranoia and uh, feeling rejected and disconnected from humans. And then there seems to be this transition where they take out their emotions for reasons we don't fully understand on innocent children. And that is candidly, that's something that we study as a field and some, I mean, brilliant people that, you know, you've worked with at the FBI or secret service. And you're like, we're not fully sure what transpires between these people and this individual. And that's where it's going to take a collective effort of some really brilliant people. And we may have to look at limiting a broader group until we gather enough thoughtful information and experience to narrow it down to just this smaller sort of profile of individuals. All right. You mentioned the brilliant group that studies it. It's what they do for a living. I want to mention a group that doesn't study the issues, but they are eyewitnesses. They are frontline eyewitnesses. You have three children. I have two. I don't know any group in the world less objective than parents about their own children. Mm -hmm. They make all sorts of rationalizations. They my child could never do this. So they either miss the signs or they ignore the signs or they rationalize the signs. Yes. So parents, I don't think are ever going to be mandatory reporters. I mean, your wife and my wife had to report if they saw evidence of child abuse, parents yep. are not going to be mandatory reporters, but how do we get parents to say, look, it's not a failure on my behalf, but yep. I'm worried about my kid. Yeah. And that you're right, man, that is a sticky wicket. Um, it is hard for parents to recognize just learning differences in their kids or things that they may be getting heckled with or bullied by in school. You're like, okay, well, yeah, my kid's at a difficult age or has these interests that don't really match up with his age group, but he's going to be a wonderful young man and have a wonderful life. And it's hard for us to see that. Um, I think it would be misplaced to put the burden on parents. It, it just is ridiculous. Now, are they one piece that we can help educate and talk to and include as a piece of this? Yes, absolutely. But we can't put the burden on them for all sorts of reasons. That's where you have to stop thinking, well, they should. You go, okay, well, you should eat healthier, but you don't. I don't know what to tell you. You, you know you should. Your doctor's been telling you for a decade now, and you're having to take medicine for diabetes. You should have known better. Well, I, yeah, we know better all the time in lots of other areas, but we just don't do. So should they? Well, I, I'm, I think that's unrealistic. Can they be a piece of the solution? Yes, they, they can and should be a piece of the solution. 
and and one of the pieces is and and it you know even before i say it it kind of scares me to say but it's appropriate i should be accountable that the guns i have i'm responsible for securing and knowing who uses them and can access them and man i feel the weight of that i do which means i've got to be thoughtful because if my kids want to borrow one of my shotguns for something. I, I, I may pause a little and think, well, where are you going hunting? What are you doing? You know, because if you choose to do something violent, I may have to answer some questions or some charges. And again, that's, that's, ooh, you talk about a, a hot button and you go, yeah, that's why there needs to be a group of thoughtful people that have thoughtful discussions away from cameras and lights that work on this for years and then implement it and revise it because I think that's a piece of it. I, I think the strategy we have to come to grips with is like you laid it out. There are three or four big areas that, that all can add some pieces that I think together can be significant. And I don't see that conversation happening. It's why I don't watch interviews. It's why I don't listen it's I've stayed off social media because my heart's heavy and I don't want to get stirred up over ridiculous behavior. And too often, I think the cop out is, well, it's really difficult. It's really complex. I don't know that we can solve it. Therefore, let's don't even try to make it better. I mean, I'm, I'm to the point, okay, maybe there is one a year, one every two years. That's better than one a week. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's never going to be perfect. I mean, what Cain killed Abel, I think it's been a while since I studied that, but I mean, that's been around. Yeah. But that, I mean, you shouldn't try to make it better. All right. I want you to imagine there's a, there's a, there's a young mom who is handing a lunch to her first grade child packing up the backpack and the kid looks at the mom and says, I don't want to go to school today because I don't want to die. What's that mom supposed to say to the child? Gosh, dog it, man. I tell you, that just absolutely crushes me, man. I just breaks my heart. Um, It absolutely breaks my heart. As parents, we got to encourage them because school is a place they desperately need to grow emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, because they need to have a life worth living. And we've got to manage our worry and we got to encourage our little ones. And we got to be thoughtful about the schools and what we can do to help out. Um, You know, we have to step into life even when we're a little nervous and worried because it's worth it. Because if we allow fear to make our choices, we will have a shallow life that's not very, not very meaningful and not filled with a lot of joy. Um, that is probably one of the most difficult conversations moms and dads are going to have to have. And it just we owe it to them and the next generation to do this better. So I, I, that's the best answer. And I dislike it greatly. All right. I want you to imagine one other conversation. It's between 
a mom and a grandmom or a husband and a wife or a mom and a best friend. I'm worried about my son. I'm worried about my grandson, but I don't want to overreact. I, I don't want my grandson stigmatized by, you know, ne quote, needing help or going to a doctor, but, but I am worried. How do you get over that feeling that I have been a failure because I am worried about my son? Yeah, it's the only failure is us not connecting our kids with the help they need and just have conversations. You're not, it's not you. It's, it, we just can't think like that. I mean, that that's my short answer is it's the wrong way to think. Um, you you got to think, I just, if I'm worried about my kid, I need to have conversations and just have them have conversations. It's, it's not a failure. It's, it's a conversation. And that's that's all you want to do. Just have the conversation. Um, get them connected with somebody that they can talk to, that they feel comfortable talking to, that might help them see the world a little bit better, might help them feel a little bit more connected, um, might help them feel a little bit more hopeful. Um, do that. That's don't don't take it to that next level of filling in the blank of, oh, my gosh, don't, don't do that. Um, you're just wanting them to have a conversation because you see they feel lonely or isolated or down or they're just struggling to connect with peers, um, especially for young adults. You, you want to be aware of that and you want to do what you can to, we have to do a better job. It's like I said to you on Sunday, we got to do a better job of what's, what is going to see a counselor or therapist. You're just having a conversation like you have with your teachers. That, that's all you're looking to do. Just talk about life. Talk about, um, Hey, this is how I feel. Or yeah, I, I feel this way with, um, with these kids or, with this and, and, you know, there are so many teachers and coaches or um, drama coaches or th that, that have a heart for kids or Sunday school teachers or pastors and go, you know what? I don't want you feeling like that. Um, so I don't care who they talk to, um, whether it's a therapist or a coach or have them talk to somebody that's a little bit older that gives them a different perspective than, than what they're hearing from their friends or peers. Um, and sometimes the world can't give us what we need, meaning our friends just aren't able to have the conversations that we need to have. Okay, well, that's where we need to loop in some adults that can do it in a very different way. I mean, does that make sense? It does. We're going to pause right there. More of my conversation with Dr. Kevin Gilliland is next. I want to ask you two more questions, and then I'm going to let you get back to helping people. I want you to balance for us this living in a prison of fear, which is not good for anyone, but 
what I don't want is people forgetting what they felt and thought when they heard what had happened at fill in the blank, because there are a lot. Because I think we have a tendency, we're wired to not want to live with those feelings all the time. So we move on because it's debilitating. But when we move on, then we lose the sense of urgency that something must be done until it happens again. I know living in a prison of fear is bad. I know that. But forgetting may be not good. No, that's not good. And so you go, well try to navigate to a place that you can do something. And one of the places you might be able to do something is at your local school. I mean, just ask, Hey, what are we doing? What can I do? How can I help out? Who can I talk to? Who can I volunteer with? Is there space for me to have some influence in my little world? Um, And I think that helps us fight some of that hopelessness. You know what I mean? It it just, okay, I can do something in my community. Um, I I just, I I won't say who, but I just spent some time in a wonderful community in Arkansas. And man, dude, it just touched my heart. The way that those business people and leaders in that community care for their community And the way they step in and are active, that's what I think helps me feel safer and and in a little bit more control because I'm like, okay, I can do something up at my kid's school or I can meet with that principal or those teachers or organize some people that I'm not going to forget about this and I'm not going to feel hopeless. Um, and, And I think... I think for me, at least, I get a little more hopeful when I can do more than just sign a petition or join some walk. Or, and I'm not opposed to those things, but man, I, I want to do something practical that I feel like is improving the safety and reducing the fear of my kid or your kid or your mom or dad or that teacher. I love teachers. And dang it, man. So I would say, you know, that's why step away from the big picture global policy. I I feel hopeless with that. But I start to get a little more hopeful when I think about my neighborhood and my community. And hey, what can we do at this school? Can I get up a collection and We can pay an off-duty officer, or I don't know what it's going to take, but I want to look at conversations I can have in my little area, and and then I'm going to hope and pray that somehow, as a country, we get a group of people that will help us move forward in a very different direction. I'm like, there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful, successful people in this country that give to amazing things, man, we desperately need somebody like them to say, you know what, I'm going to fund a group and I'm going to have representatives from all these different areas because I want to see us do something different. We're going to come up with something 
that all politicians and all states are like, you know what? That's fantastic. I think we can adopt that. So I'd say if you're an individual, do something locally. Do something that you can feel has has a tangible difference for you. That may be your school board or your city council. And man, I, I do. I just I don't care. I'll put it out there in the universe. There's got to be somebody that's been incredibly successful, cares about our country and our societies and the next generation of leaders that wants to fund a project to move us in a very different direction as a country. So what I hear you saying is do not let the fact that you can't do everything, keep you from doing something. Yes. You know, uh, Harold, can I call you Harold? You can call me whatever you want. Um, except congressman, because you, you I, seem to be down on them. This morning. So I, uh, I apologize for my long windedness. I'm not typically like that, but honestly, my heart's just heavy. And um, I appreciate your succinct summarization. So, yes, that's All right. It. I'm going to let you go with one more question. And you know me, it won't be we won't be ending on a happy note. You know, yeah, that. yeah. You, you've got some pet peeves and Thanks, I got a Bill pet Shakespeare. Peeve. Thanks. You read too much Shakespeare, but keep going. I got a pet peeve just like you do. I hate misinformation. I hate disinformation. I think it is a corruption of our freedom to propagate mis and disinformation. But for some reason, Kevin, that just defies my ability to comprehend it, conspiracy theories begin to pop up in the aftermath of these events. I mean, you got knuckleheads that say Sandy Hook did not happen. I'm telling you, brother, I met with the parents of kids who were killed at Sandy Hook. It happened. So what I mean, What makes people want to invent a conspiracy theory while their fellow human beings are grieving at a level that no one can comprehend? What is that about this creation Man, it wires brains that way. I, I tell you, it. I, I, man, that is that is a question that we do not have adequate time to answer, because um, it's it exists all the time. That's why I love uh, birds aren't real. Um, I love that because it just pokes at our vulnerabilities for that. But when that occurs at a time of such tragic suffering, I have no time for those people. None. I, I, I'm fine if you think the earth's flat. I don't care. But you start saying things like that on a subject of horrendous personal suffering. I have no I have no time or desire to even waste my time talking to you. Just I just don't I don't allow those people in my life. They're just oxygen thieves. I'm like, no, I got no time for you. And we used to not have to let them in life. But then we've got these social media uh, platforms, which you and I aren't really on. But no. nonetheless, uh, it, it it gives them it gives uh, volume to a voice that really I mean, <laughs> it uh, shouldn't even be heard. No, 
I know. And if you're not screening that stuff out of your social media, that's a mistake on your part. You do not need that kind of negativity and insanity in your life. It's no. Yeah. If you haven't checked out birds aren't real, you need to. It's a painful lesson for those people that, uh, that go down the rabbit hole of insanity on the web. So yeah, I just uh, don't give those people the time of day. Just ignore that. And, and that's where we have to be more disciplined about it. Because if you don't, you're going to get really worked up and angry and upset. And I'm like, no, that's your bad for letting that insanity in. You got to keep that stuff out of your house. And now with these phones and Instagram, and you, look, man, we got to be more disciplined about what we allow in our heads. We do. And that ridiculousness is inexcusable at times like this. All right. I'm going to let you go by helping you because you've been very helpful to us. I know that you did not attend class with the regularity that I did. Uh, I was a stickler uh, for, for going to class, whether the teacher took role or not, I was a stickler and you were not. Okay. I hope, I hope (laughs) good people in New York dump that because I don't want you to be accused of falsehood and, uh, I can't count that. I can't believe you said it on, on a national, uh, on the record. I had to answer questions to my lovely bride when I got home. I'm like, about skipping school. Yeah. I'm like, he was joking. He seriously, <laughs> I still haven't returned my dad's phone calls like son. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know. Pops. I, I don't know what Trey was referring to. I, you know, Trey, that guy, I think he got me mixed up with somebody else. Cause huh, I was, Ooh, boy. Oh, my heavens. Oh, to go back and go to school again with you. We would have had a lot of fun in class. I mean, we never tried it, but I think we would have had a lot of fun in class to match all the fun we had outside of class. Yeah. If we'd have gone, I think it would have been a hoot and a half. But, you know, I don't want that to be a bad example to the the young listeners. We, um, We occasionally missed. I feel like we... We, we always got good enough grades, and, and, and we knew that right margin. Uh, well, we, we tested that right margin, but honestly, what I tell young people is that is my biggest regret because in hindsight, I can now, I can now tell I could have done all of that and still had as much fun with you outside the classroom as yeah, I did. That's fair statement. I could have. I'm not like marriage and marriage in the family. Some of those classes. No, I don't know that I would have enjoyed those had I attended, but lots of the other classes. Sure. I would have had as much fun with you in class as I did out. But I say all of that to say, Kevin, I know you missed this day, but I'm almost positive. The earth is flat. So, I mean, so when, no, it's round. No, I'm almost positive. The earth is round. you You say you don't care. I think it is round. I do feel fairly certain it is. Okay. Although I have, I have worked with people that sailed off the edge. Um, so I think there are exceptions and, and uh, I do think that birds aren't real and I think you need to check into it. I think it's uh, I think it's a, a worthy cause that you need to pursue <laughs> some knowledge on do that for me. I can't wait. And uh, I, 
I'm grateful to you, Kevin, because the, I mean, you do this. I, I couldn't do it. I had to get out of it. I, I can't be surrounded by death and depravity. I had to get out of that. Yeah. Um, and I know that you do a lot more than just that, but in times like this, you got to be able to, it's overwhelming and you don't want, you don't want to be overwhelmed for the rest of your life. No. And, and it, um, it is very hard for those of us talking to those individuals or even moms and dads that aren't in Uvalde. Um, it, it takes a toll on us. And my hope and prayer is that we start a thoughtful discussion, which I hope you'll, you'll head up with whoever these individuals are that are going to promote this. Um, yeah, I think you would do a tremendous job of it. So I hope it's been a helpful discussion to um, the uh, six or seven folks listening. It has, you re- did you start recording yet? Have they done that? Yeah, I, yeah I mean, we, 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 we started about 10 minutes ago. Okay, good. Um, this, what is FNC? Is that? Uh, is, I know the F is Fox, but okay. So I get a I get a third credit, I think. Okay. Fox News Corporation, maybe. Okay. We'll well, and they're also that. very mysterious and not sharing their feed with us. You notice that, right? Yeah, the, well, the whole thing's not on video, uh, and that's our gift in favor to the country. So, so they Which don't is go good on. because I honestly, if you were closer, I I think Terry would have kind of spit on her thumb and done some work on that top knot of yours. It's a I, little, it may just be the lighting, but I feel like you got a hair out of. No, it, it, it's not the lighting. Okay, um, it, it's. Uh, Look, if you had any idea the amount of time it takes to get your hair to look this bad, yeah, uh, you you wouldn't say that. I put hours and hours into this, Kevin. Okay, well, I, I haven't had to do that in a while, as you can tell. Um, so <laughs> I wasn't gonna, gonna I wasn't gonna bring it up. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna take your your word on it. So um, I do, in all sincerity, I hope it's been a helpful uh, but heavy discussion. Yeah, I think what people need to reflect on um, the instrumentalities by which uh, this um, this depravity uh, is brought to bear. Uh, the individuals, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, it's a male. Yeah, and the culture that we live in, and then as you have talked about, the political environment that we are in, where we just don't ever seem to do anything. So if people will reflect on those four things. I can't thank you enough. The topic I would rather, you know, just so people know you and I were going to actually discuss our five favorite comedies and we'll yeah. do that at some point. Some point when, um, when laughter seems, uh, seems more natural and possible. And, and one final thing, not, because it really matters, but it's not really 99% is male. It's usually, it's actually closer to 96% of the time. It's, it's a male aggressor, but that's just a fun fact. It's, I get the gist of what you were saying broadly. No, I'll tell you what, I, I, I would have to struggle to think 
of a female mass killer, but I don't study it the way you do it. So it's very rarely a female. So yeah. All right. 99, 96. Uh, you were close. My margin, my margin for error is plus or minus 20 points. It was always oh, okay. that way in school. So okay. I'm within yeah. the margin for error. It's a, it's a shame. That's not how they determined our grade or class participation. Cause I feel like we'd have done better. The class participation requires you to be in class, Kevin. Which was weird. Why didn't they say that? Yeah. I mean, if they'd outlined that, I feel like you and I would have been like, oh, well, that clarifies a lot. Yeah, it, it, it really is all the teacher's fault for not being really, really upfront. Of course, you weren't there the first day of class, so you would have missed that, too. Well, okay, look, I tell you what, when we want to talk about college, we'll, we'll also talk about your limited understanding of the option of pass fail versus, <laughs> but I know that's still a very sore subject. So that's, I'm, I'm going to use that as a tease for our next. Never uh, been madder at you <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and I, hey, and there's a lot to choose from, but there, never <laughs> been madder at you in my like, life. Like, I would. I, I actually thought twice before I threw that out. I'm like, oh, man, I still don't think he's over yeah. that. I shouldn't it's even... too soon, Kevin. It is. It's, it's, it's only been 35 years. It's too soon. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. give, me, give me another couple of hundred centuries, yeah. and I'll yeah. be able to discuss that then, with some rationality. Then we'll, then we'll discuss it. Come yeah, on. I think that's a good decision, my friend. All right. All right, brother. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to visit with you again. And thank everybody for listening. We went a little bit long, but I think the topic is worth it. Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.